everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor? I feel pretty good. I feel like somebody who is blissfully unaware of the terrible weather that you're living through. <laughs> Me or you? I keep getting reports back from the East Coast of like how horrible the weather is. And I'm just like, oh, well, I'm completely unaware of anything that has to do with that. Uh, how are you feeling? Do you, do you remember rain? I have It's a rainy day right now. I barely remember rain, but it did rain <laughs> a few days ago. It was weird. It was like it rained. And apparently that was the first time since May. So wow, shit, losing track of time. Uh, yeah. How you feeling? I feel uh, I had a little bit too much coffee, so I feel like a bouncy ball. Ooh, I'm drinking coffee trash right now. Compactor or something. Let's see how I feel halfway through the podcast. If I keep interrupting you incessantly, it's because I finished my cup of coffee. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, anyways, for this week, I thought we could revisit an old game. I, we did it a while ago. I mean, now. Um, mm-hmm called what if it's you know this pretty much endlessly repeatable game because it's all random numbers and mm-hmm. we generate it on the spot and uh so i've got a table here in front of me one to 20 i got 20 authors 20 scenarios okay. so i'm just going to ask you to choose two random numbers between one and 20 we're going to do all some right. speculating some speculating so i choose one like two numbers between one and 20 and then the matchup is what we have to speculate on yeah all right, well, for the first thing I'm going to do is throw you a curveball because it occurs to me that there might be like a mysterious function to the way that you're thinking. So the first thing that I'm going to do, I'm curious to know what the first author and the first subject is. So one and one. Okay. This one, not intentional, but uh, we'll see if it's any good or not. What if Arthur C. Clarke was mm-hmm. a YouTuber? Instead of an author. Whoa, he would be a really good YouTuber. Have you seen, um, do you know the YouTube channel Smarter Every Day? Uh, you've shown me that before. Yeah. Just there's like, YouTube there's genius. Like a longtime YouTube engineer guy who just takes like high speed cameras and does like crazy stuff. Shout out to Destin Smarter Every Day, even though he's like a huge YouTuber. And, um, that I think I feel like Arthur C. Clarke would be that like on speed, like it would be about like space and like how space stations can like you know save humanity, like really deep subjects. Okay, he would go crazy with it. Yeah, and it would be it would be like the same tag like smarter every day. It's like he starts out by being like, "Hey, it's Destin. Welcome to Smarter Every Day," and it would be like, "Hey, I'm Arthur. Welcome to." crazy science time yeah maybe he would bring the same (laughs) ideas that he had in his books like the cylindrical c like that sort of like how would this work like what's the oh yeah that like speculative like high science speculative whatevers it would be amazing that's what it would be (laughs) yeah sounds like he would have some numbers there definitely oh yeah he'd have millions of subscribers that would be awkward like like and subscribe you know (laughs) <laughs> like it's you have to do like the Clark. youtube thing and the weird like thumbnails where it's like is this sometimes, real and he's making like a stupid face i feel like it is possible in the modern era because sometimes people are sort of like less famous than you think like one of my old managers at my former job was like telling me a story he used to go to like science fiction and toy conventions and stuff and he was like one time i was at this sci-fi convention and isaac asimov was there but like no one even knew who he was <laughs> like he was checking out the booths and he was like aren't you isaac Asimov?" and he was like yes i am it's like surrounded <laughs> oh, yes. by millions of nerds who don't even like i guess because like back in the past too it's like you didn't like you couldn't look him up on wikipedia or whatever in like the 80s yeah. 90s it's a less visual medium too unless you have your picture on your books yeah unless you're intensely studying the dust jacket okay so yeah. number one was arthur c clark youtuber <laughs> should i do good. another guess yeah all right, I'm going to do, now I'm going late in the game. I'm going to do 18 and 16. Okay, what if Jack Kerouac wrote the Twilight series? It would be really, it would be better. <laughs> I would, no. How would that Kerouac, turn into something else? 
yeah well first of all it wouldn't have the same audience it wouldn't have the same like in some ways isn't twilight and also like other stuff like harry potter and lord of the rings and stuff is like sort of defined by its fandom in a way so i feel like kerouac writing like a romance vampire novel it would be like people would take it more seriously and he would have like dreamy passages of how he would describe blood in like 400 different colors Oh. <laughs> he'd be like you know what was like, like, like that one quote that i took from kerouac on on the road where he's like the sad brown world or like whatever it's like the blood okay. <laughs> dripping from whatever what's what's the main character in twilight is bella i think and yeah. by i think i mean i know edward and jacob edward and jacob yeah so i i would hope that the names would remain the same pretty good names Okay. I think uh, Kerouac, he's probably more of an Edward. I don't know. There's no basis for that, but yeah. Oh, no, there's basis for that. He's definitely more of an Edward. (laughs) Kerouac is definitely an Edward. Okay. All right, hit me me the next one. All right, uh, let's do 10 and 6. What if Gabriel Garcia Marquez was a stand-up comic? Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't even know if it would be, I don't think he'd make it past like, you know, feel like he wouldn't be successful. It would be one of those stand-up comics that's like, he just does like poetry, but right. there's one or two laughs in there and people right. are like, what a comedian. <laughs> yeah. No one get. yeah, I, I guess, I guess if, yeah, if he was like successful, it would be one of those people where it's like, you don't understand why they're successful. You know, like, have you ever seen a stand-up comedian that just doesn't gel with you, like, at all? But for some reason, oh, for they have, sure, like, yeah. Netflix specials. And you're like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that would be me and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Oh, I did like Love in the Time of Cholera, but whatever. A lot uh, of punchlines in that one. Just, just full oh, of yeah. Full of hilarious <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people he would, dying. His, his stand-up would just be, like, a really, really, really long story with, like, a smirk at the very end like exactly yeah <laughs> quiet audience <laughs> um let's do eight and twelve eight and twelve uh what if carl of nausgaard mm-hmm. created the garfield comic strip <laughs> carl of garfield carl 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 of arbuckle 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 um you know, I think he actually would maybe be decent at that. Like the sort of like malaise, you know? I don't think of, he would be... Of Arbuckle's existence? Or... Of everything. Like Gar- Garfield in a weird way is very sort of like mundane and depressed. Yeah. He's snarky, but he's also like misanthropic kind of like... Yeah. I <laughs> don't know. I think... Kind of... It would definitely be something maybe for a slightly more mature audience. You know how there's like comic strips that are like they go like one foot deeper into like not being for kids. Garfield? No. Okay. I, here's a story. And I I'm, I haven't looked this up, but I remember this vividly. I, I would watch the Garfield and Friends show every morning right. in middle yep. school, like yep, 630 yep. right before the bus. And one of his like catchphrases, like he said often was like so and so should be drug out into the street and shot. Like that was nah. his, that he said that. <laughs> Something Regularly. that like would yeah, never like, fly in 2019. Yeah, Mondays should be drug out into the street and shot. And like nice. that freaking Bill See? Murray delivery or whatever. See, Nosgard like Bill Murray. Nosgard is uh he'd definitely be fine in the Garfield universe. <laughs> Nosgard if you're listening come out with a Garfield book. The horror, the the unseen horror of Mondays. <laughs> uh let's like do one, one specific lasagna from like august of 1984 exactly exactly me and my <laughs> brother the, yeah it was the best lasagna we had a Odie and i had an argument <laughs> uh let's do six Ship normal to abu dhabi six six and 14 six and 14 what if r.a salvatore uh mm-hmm was one of the Democratic nominees for president. 
holy shit, it'd be a fucking nightmare for people who don't. <laughs> for people who don't know, R. A. Salvatore is a famous, very prolific Forgotten Realms author. So he wrote like dozens and dozens of Dungeons and Dragons books. I'm surprised that Mark as like R. A. Salvatore is a reference for you. Have you read him? No, I just I'm just aware of it. Right. Yeah. So R. A. Salvatore, he's like. He's, you know, very important in a young nerd's life for that concept that I talked about, that I've talked about before of it like, oh, I read this 400 page book and it wasn't like scary, you know? And uh, if he was a Democratic nominee, I mean, first of all, I feel like he's probably one of those people that I don't want to know his politics because he's probably like <laughs> weirdly right wing for some horrible reason. Um, but I love R.A. Salvatore. I actually got books signed by him when i was a kid they're probably in my mom's house somewhere but i went to what? i went to an event at walden books walden in, books okay. in uh what was the mall that was near us like the one that defined buckland. our buckland yeah buckland hills mall in connecticut and r.a salvatore was signing copies of his most recent dritzdorden book which is like his dark elf <laughs> series well okay you gotta say what would his democratic stance be what would his stance be for for a president like free or he well, would first of all back, he like, definitely like i said i think i'm like or something yeah i think he's definitely like secretly i wouldn't agree with his politics but he would probably be like running on the democratic ticket because he has like a better idea of what's like how to like redefine the republican party or something like that and uh yeah i don't know it would be like what did you just say? I feel like what you said was good. He would bring back, like, he'd make himself king or something. Yeah. <laughs> make it a magic. Go back to, like, a feudal system. That's, like, his yeah. pitch. Yeah, maybe. Or, like, you know, just, like, uh, he's interested in just, like, all-out war. <laughs> a free sword for everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, maybe he'd have some good idea. He'd probably be, like, you know, the best president in history, like, accomplish universal health care or something like that. Yeah. I, lo I love you, R.I. <laughs> Salvatore. <laughs> Hopefully he would get, you know, literacy up. Oh, yeah, for sure. He would definitely be all about the books. Um, I'm going to say let's do 9 and 20. 9 and 20. What if Ayn Rand Ugh. had a had a craft brew named after them? Because, you know, okay, I'm going to start with this. Like, you know how the whole craft beer scene has blown up to the point where right. they just, there's 10 billion of them, so they just run out of names. There's probably one called, like, infinite beer or something like <laughs> or just you know there's this shit like that it's just like it's called Nietzsche's like yeah ipa like or shit like exactly. that so what what would uh so th I'm, I'm certain like for some of these combos when i thought of like that one where it would this one like craft brew named after them i was like mm -hmm. okay some of these like probably doesn't exist but i'm i would have to believe that there's some sort of ayn rand yeah. beer i feel like already. the ayn i feel like the ayn rand beer would be like it would definitely be like a stout or something or like something that's like horribly unacceptable to 99.9 percent .9 of people <laughs> you know like when you go and like have a beer and you know your buddy who's like really into beers is like you should have like this dark chocolate coffee stout that like tastes like <laughs> fucking death that would be well, one you know, of the yeah it's actually the best on merit but it just tastes like shit yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, yeah, that's exactly mm. what it would be like the Iron Red. Cause that's what, that's what the experiencing her books is. It's like, oh, I'm going to read this literary master. And then it's like, oh, wait, it's like horrible garbage. <laughs> so that's the Those kind of be beer easier. she would be. Yeah. That'd be easier with the what, ones that we already covered. Like, uh, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez beer. I think you could, you could make that like, I mean, 100 beers of solitude. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. 100 Beers of Solitude. <laughs> you need Drinking to, like, alone. copyright that. <laughs> you need to copyright that, like, right now. Um, yeah, there's so many beers. Even Opeth has a beer. I mean, it's, like, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, let's go with, I'm going to say 12 and 15. 12 and 15. What if HP Lovecraft wrote okay. a sci-fi space opera whoa okay so i always get hp lovecraft and t.s Eliot confused so hp lovecraft is call of cthulhu right call of cthulhu yeah yeah so it would just be amazing i bet you he probably did write one 
<laughs> like some weird like proto some kind sci-fi. of sci-fi yeah space opera though like a like a star wars-esque story right. and multiple volumes yeah 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 i think i think that would be amazing i think it would be one of those books that people fondly look back on like oh haha they're like they didn't really know about technology i don't think he would be like super good at predictive technology like arthur c clark is yeah but it would be awesome i bet there's some fan fiction though that's already like that like a cthulhu like in space for sure oh definitely cthulhu is every cthulhu is like on coffee cups yeah so that one kind of works yeah not much to say there yeah (laughs) um let's do three and 17 three and 17 what if sally rooney so this is only you know because i haven't read her any of her work yet what if yeah you kind of get you get the idea (laughs) what if sally rooney published a cookbook oh wow um normal food right yeah like normal <laughs> food it would be very yeah it would be really normal food it w- i feel like her her cookbook would be like subversive in a way it would be like how to make buttered noodles and like in <laughs> and in between like every recipe would be like touching dialogue between teenage lovers <laughs> But yeah, it would be it would be recipes that aren't like it's not like something like of a specific culture or like something that's like hard to accomplish. It would be like how to toast bread. What what was the like most complicated thing you could cook as a teenager? I mean, I feel like I I was I felt a little bit of a, of fame and responsibility in our friend group cuz I could cook pancakes. <laughs> I feel like there was multiple like sleepovers and like things like where people were at my house and they'd be like, Trev, make pancakes. You've made pancakes before. So I used to make like Bisquick pancakes when I was a teen. (laughs) Yeah. I often wonder how many people that we used to know or whatever still don't know how to make pancakes. (laughs) Probably, probably (laughs) all of them. (laughs) Yeah. But that was my, what was your advanced recipe? Actually, I, before you said pancakes, I was actually going to say I made uh, a, make a mean crepe. Whoa, that's more advanced so, than pancakes. A little more step on. Yeah, yeah. That's the family kind of thing with a cast iron pan. You so know? that's because you guys are like secretly French. Yeah. There's like 1% French still happening. <laughs> do you ever do a crepe? My favorite type of crepe is like the most simple kind where they do like lemon and sugar. Have you ever done that? Not lemon, because, uh, yeah, like that French thing my family used to also make their own maple syrup, so we had to, had to use that. Oh, yeah, that is true. You guys are so whole green. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm going to do number four and number 18. Okay, what if Truman Capote, mm-hmm. uh, and this is a carryover from the first time we played this game, what if Truman Capote wrote a thousand-page novel about Pokemon? Because that, that one's just fun to do with any author. That should just be the next <laughs> game. Like, pick an author and we'll do the Pokemon. <laughs> the thousand-page book. Yeah. Pokemon. <laughs> what if Pokemon version? Um, so, Truman Capote, digging into the Pokemon world. I think I think that, um, who was it who went with him on In Cold Blood? The author of uh, uh, Mockingbird. To Kill a Mockingbird. What's her name? Harper. Harper Lee. So first of all, Harper Lee would have done way more research about the Pokemon, and go on uncre- full Pokedex. Yeah, and go uncredited. She she caught all of the Pokemon, and then Truman watched over her shoulder and wrote about it. Um, and. Yeah, it would be it would be kind of like a side of Pokemon that you've never seen before, like their their secret social betrayals and love affairs. It would it would just be about a different side of Pokemon. You know, they're supposed to be like all like cute and like oh they just help us in our everyday tasks and everything in Pokemon world is so perfect or whatever. And Truman Capote would be like, nope, there's something so under he, the surface with these Pokemon. Well, he would it be that or just digging into like the whole investigative on the whole like team rocket or team whatever they call it now oh maybe yeah he would like expose the the bad that's the dark world the expose the bad guys and he would like get ingratiate he would like live among the bad pokemon you know like 
whatever cougher or whatever the hell those things coughing. called. Coughing. Coughing, <laughs> yeah. He would like befriend a coughing and then go deep. All right, I'm choosing numbers. Hold on, I'm gonna. Uh, I want you to. I want the second number to either be eleven or five. Wow, you're making demands now. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, the second number has to be eleven or five. Sure. Okay, so five and five. All right, five and five. What if Yukio Mishima was a guest on this podcast? Oh my god, I don't think I'd be able to handle that. I'd probably have to recuse myself. Yeah, well, definitely we need a translator. Well, we have a friend who could translate for us. (laughs) Yeah, our friend Brett. But I don't know if Brett would be able to handle the translating duties of of Yukio Mishima. Um, I wouldn't be able to handle that, man. It would be too into like I've like studied his work, and it would be one of those situations. Have you ever thought like? There's probably multiple people in my life that, you know, like you want to meet your heroes. Obviously, Yukio Mishima, I would not be able to be like friends with him. He's too intense and he's like a right wing nut job. But like, you know, the whole axiom of like, don't meet your heroes. Like, I often think that like, you know, like one of my biggest celebrity sightings, if it were ever to happen, would be like Larry David. But then if I like truly tried to express like what I think about his work and stuff, he'd be like, you're a moron. <laughs> You know, like, get away from me. Yeah, and I think it's the same thing with Mishima, where I would just be too, like, fawning and be like, I love you, like, so much, and, like, your mind is amazing and, like, whatever, and he would just be like, we're not really talking about anything real. You're just being a fanboy. <laughs> I'd try to keep it as real as possible. Okay. What book would you cover? You'd have to be, you'd have to bring a book to that episode and ask him some um, questions. I would definitely do Confessions of a Mask because I just feel like that's the one that introduced me to him. That's the one that's most important to me. But I also feel like there's this whole like era of work, like his whole bibliography comes after Confessions of a Mask. But Confessions of a Mask is like so true to his like it's like the purest form of his whole M.O. Mm -hmm. So I definitely have to talk to him about Confessions of a Mask. Nice. And he'd probably be like, I barely remember writing it. <laughs> All right. Um, last so the number, next one. 11. Yeah, it we'll has do, to be 11. Last one. Okay, so I'm going to do 13 and 11. Okay, what if Zadie Smith Ooh. had all of their works turned into movies, but the lead has to be played by Will Ferrell? <laughs> well, first of all, with Zadie, well, <laughs> first of all, Will Ferrell would be getting in a lot of trouble in 2019 because he'd be playing a lot of female roles, almost exclusively. Um, <laughs> White Teeth with with Will Ferrell as the lead. Um, that would just be amazing. That Gender would, swaps that, White Teeth. Yeah, gender swapped White Teeth, or maybe they would, you know. She gives, like, a decent amount of... There's, like, male figures in White Teeth that you could kind of shift the perspective and be like, yeah, he's, like, the main character. Like, if Will Ferrell was the dad in White Teeth who works at that, like, box factory, probably be pretty good. Is there there enough humor in her works to satiate him? I have faith in Will Ferrell's serious acting ability. But, yes, there is. Her Her books are pretty funny. Her books are pretty funny. He would be good in Autograph Man, too. Autograph Man, I think he would be, like, really funny. A movie of that. Nice. You can see why I wanted to do that. <laughs> why I wanted Eleven <laughs> to make sure that was picked this week. The versatility of Will Ferrell. <laughs> cool. All right, that was a good right. what if. Yeah, I love this game. I like coming yeah, up with the so stupid good. scenarios. So Dev will definitely play this one again. All right. No, yeah, this so, is episode 41. Yeah, episode 41, first. which means, yeah, Mark is going first, so I'll let it rip. All right. Uh, I want to summarize what I read this week in a few words, which are basically, what what the hell? <laughs> um, <laughs> this book that I read this week, it was like an Eric Andre sketch mixed with Ulysses, but in the form of like an author's workbook or their diary or like a notebook or something you but have it's also, my attention it's also one of the uh, early examples of metafiction and it's just 
intended to be confusing and absurd. And I had hyped up this one forever uh, in my mind because it was it's the second book I've attempted from what might be from the author of what might be my favorite book ever. Okay. Um, so if you think if you go all the way back to episode two of this podcast, I covered The Third Policeman by Flan O'Brien. Yes. Okay. Who is yeah. Flan O'Brien. He's the Irishman of many pseudonyms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so the I think policeman, I know it. I think I know what you read. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned it, mentioned it before that I was going to read this. Um, but for, you know, this week I finally got around to reading At Swim, Two Birds. Right, yeah. in 1939 and i think i've told you before that at swim two birds was i owned a copy of this book and it didn't survive a move <laughs> i was moving and i was like i don't need this book yeah i mean but i'm i'm second i've always been second guessing that decision since you covered the third policeman i think there's i have two copies now so i will right. send you one yeah i think i needed to be i have the right understanding of who he is yeah so I'll, I'll get into why you should probably read The Third Policeman first. Yeah. <laughs> but So this this book threw me for a loop, for sure. And I'm un- entirely unsure about how to summarize it. You know, what sections to read from, what themes to take from it, what to take away. And if you remember my review of The Third Policeman, what drew me to that book, what made me, you know, makes it possibly my favorite book ever is that it's full of dream logic and absurdity and there's a little puzzles within it and it keeps you know it's got these concepts that it keeps building on to like the furthest point it's super anxiety inducing (laughs) yeah past where you think it's gonna go so at swim two birds has all that too but it was so hard for me to grasp what to do with it you know i was confused i enjoyed the confusion but nonetheless very confused and i think it's something that i'm gonna have to reread down the road i don't Mm. think one week is a long enough time for this one Mm -hmm. but i think what's going on is that i desperately want flan o'brien to be my favorite author so i'm gonna (laughs) give this one i'm gonna give this one another try further on down the road well this book the way that this book came to me was sort of like and i think the way that flan o'brien comes to a lot of people is like okay so there's there's um who wrote ulysses joyce joyce so it's like there's joyce and you know life of an artist as a young man or whatever and like all these like amazing irish books and then you're like who's the other irish you know like modern amazing author and it's like this guy flan o'brien yeah you pretty much like number two You've got, well, you got Joyce and you've got Beckett, but those are like probably the big two. And then O'Brien's mm-hmm. kind of third place, yeah. maybe. But, but At Swim is his one of his most famous, like people are like, if you don't understand this, then you don't understand literature. Like you, yeah. Like, yeah. This is the one that Joyce like raved about. He said like, you know, mm-hmm. this guy, this guy rocks in his, you know, obviously not saying that, but in his own words. And mm-hmm. so this one, it's full on metafiction it's super super dense in that sense and it's really this is gonna just be hard hard to get through and that's exactly how i remember presenting the third policeman being like you know this isn't gonna work but i'm gonna ramble on and and see what you think about what i said Hmm. so this is a book about a college student that's attempting to write a book but right off the bat he's like you know books don't I don't think books should just be a linear story. I think a book can have three distinct beginnings and endings. So he's, and then right from there, he starts three different stories. Mm. And the structure of this book is unique because O'Brien will kind of tee up these different, different threads and different parts of the story from the point of view of a writer, like the writer in the book. Mm -hmm. And so since it's a book of layers, I think I'll talk about it that way. Like the topmost layer is this student author and his parts are kind of introduced with italics being like biographical reminiscence, part the second or part the third, that kind of, that sort of thing. And yeah, like there's a lot about like just the, I guess, typography used in this book that it, that sets it apart. Like that sort of thing, the use of italics, the use of chopped up kind of paragraphs. And so within that layer, 
it sort of reads like a diary, you know, one that's written by an author where he's kind of picking apart everything around him. Like he'll be like, well, I put on my trousers and then it cuts to some more italics, like in the next paragraph, that's like nature of said trousers, narrow legged, mm-hmm. uncomfortable of the pre-war class. Or like when someone makes an expression, it'll cut off and describe the expression. Like, like mm-hmm. it's this guy taking notes about it. And he, and he kind of does that with everything that needs description. Like if we're introduced to a new character, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that sound <laughs> that probably sounds extremely tedious, but it's not because like the scope, the scope of this top layer isn't really that wide. You know, it's a student who lives with his uncle. He sleeps a lot. He drinks a lot. His uncle thinks he's lazy. His uncle thinks he doesn't work that hard because he's in his room all the time working on stories. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you think, you have a grasp on this top layer. It's pretty basic, right? It's just top layer basic. Yes. It's just an author talking about an author. So here's where it gets um, a little bit harder to understand. The next layer down, he's got these three stories and it'll break off into these stories. You know, um, it tells you when it's breaking off, but it's still very confusing. One story is about this sort of devilish type character. Uh, who has like a fairy in his pocket, like an unseen, all-knowing, seemingly that sort of character like mm-hmm. that accompanies him. Another one is about <laughs> another one is about another author who writes westerns. So he's got his own characters that are his creation. Mm-hmm. And the third story is about sort of like adaptations of these old Irish legends like the Mad King or, you know, a warrior, Finn mm-hmm. McCool, the warrior, or the Mad King Sweeney, like that's that sort of thing. Like This is know, probably Irish where lore. Joyce, that's where Joyce starts to fall in love because that's oh, yeah. like his oh, yeah. like shit. Yeah, Irish lore that I don't have the background for, you know? Exactly. That sort of thing. And so that's where things are, I mean, that's where people like myself were kind of lost in it, but you, I mean, it's still enjoyable. And, Okay, so from there, you got these three stories. It's not going to make sense or be easy to follow, but what happens next is that some of these characters, the characters uh, one layer down, and then the third layer down, like the characters of the author's author, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they all, they sort of um, are drawn by circumstance to meet each other. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, something happens, like two of them fall in love, and then they want to continue to be able to see each other, so they have to manipulate this fictional author by drugging him so he can't continue his writing. Like they, <laughs> they, they kind of take control of the narrative. So they're like successful at this for a while, but then eventually this sub-level author becomes like immune to it. And, but at this time, like the characters of his that met have given birth to, to this sort of Benjamin Button type son who is like immediately middle-aged and he's an author in his own right. So there's a third <laughs> level down. He's an author. They, they determine that he's an author. And then that author manipulates the, like he manipulates the narrative from the bottom kind of mm-hmm. like, they... and all of this is in, <laughs> all of it is in the envelope of that college student. Who's like writing yes. all of this. <laughs> and he's not he's not affected by any of it it's it's more like the author in the middle is just like kind of subjected to all this mm-hmm. there's this it's like fictional character it's the theme is fictional characters rebelling against their creation mm-hmm. but which is something that's kind of been done before but o'brien took it a few more steps and made it more had it been dense. done before though i mean he this is like when does this come out it's pretty early right? uh 39 but i think there's some examples from like 1950 14 maybe that something like this had been done mm-hmm. it's definitely a unique take though and um sort of like a really deep and meta like have you seen stranger than fiction starring will ferrell <laughs> no <laughs> that's a good bit it's like it's about that it's like will ferrell kind of like discovers that he's a fictional character within an author's work of art okay it's like a truman show thing but it's like within the context of a fictional character yes. yeah okay Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, so that's probably as far as I can go for description, for like plot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 
this is the sort of book that will definitely test your patience at times. There's parts in the beginning that follow the old Irish lore for like maybe too long for my understanding. And I, I didn't think I had the background to really appreciate it. Uh-huh. But I mean, those parts still move pretty quick and the book never really stops jumping around enough for you to grow bored of it. Like there's always something, something new presented. Um, and there's, there's certainly a lot of humor that I probably didn't pick up on, but even with my limited understanding, I found the book to be very funny. Have you looked up if there's annotated versions of this book? I have not, but I'm sure that there is, or I mean, at least I should have. Cause that's like the whole know, thing with, into... uh, that's the whole thing with Finnegan's wake, right? Of like, it's so in its time that you sort of need like another book to read it, you know? Yeah. I think with this one, it's probably not that because the references are older than its time. You know, I think even in 1939, you would need to have some kind of understanding of the the legends or mm-hmm. probably be from Ireland, you know, to, to really get it. <laughs> but I could have, if I had more than a week, I could have definitely dug into, you know, Wikipedia or whatever a little more to try and understand what was going on. But anyways... I want to read a part when the lowest level author is starting to define the narrative from the bottom up. Okay. And they basically have this whole thing where they like manipulate the hell out of the middle author, like basically torture the shit out of him, like <laughs> just by creating the narrative that way. Cause they, they, you know, have the power of authorship or whatever. And what's really funny about this scene I want to read from is that in order to kind of start that process, the lowest author has to include his peers into the, he has to like conjure them into the narrative through description. Mm -hmm. So he's basically like the way I kind of saw it. I don't know if they describe like how the scene was set exactly, but the way I saw it in my head was, is basically like those people that he's trying to conjure into the story are sort of looking over his shoulder as he works at the typewriter. So kind of keep that in mind, like here. Okay, yep. Gotta find the page. So that, yeah, he's like starting to, you know, describe them in the book. A finer looking man than Mr. Paul Shanahan you would not hope to meet in a day's walk. The glory of manhood in its prime was stamped on every line of his perfectly proportioned figure, and the rhythm of glorious youth was exemplified in every movement of his fine athletic stride. The beam of his shoulders and the contours of his chest made it clear to even the most casual observer or passerby that here was a tower, a reservoir of strength. Not strength for loudish feats or for vain prodigal achievement, no, but strength for the defense of weakness, strength against oppression, strength for the advancement of all that was good and clean and generous. His complexion without blemish, his clear eye, these were the tokens of his clean living. Perfect as he was in physique, however, it would be a mistake to assume that his charms were exclusively of the physical variety. To the solution of life's problems and anxieties, he brought a ready wit and a sense of humor, an inexhaustible capacity for seeing the bright side of things even when skies were gray and no beam of sun lightened the dull blackness of the clouds. His high education, his wealth of illusion and simile embracing practically every known European language, as well as the immortal classics of Greece and Rome. These were gifts that made him the manspring and the center of gravity of every conversation, irrespective (laughs) of the matter being discussed or the parties engaged therein. And it it goes on for a while like that, but then he jumps like the next person. He had barely arrived in the orbit or radius of vision of the two travelers when he was joined by another man, one who resembled him in many respects with striking closeness. The newcomer was a man by the name of John Farisky, a name happily familiar to all who still account the sanctity of home life and the family tie as among the things that matter in this mundane old world. In appearance and physique, it could not be truly said by an impartial observer that he was in any way inferior to Mr. Shanahan, magnificent specimen of manhood as the latter undoubtedly was. Curiously (laughs) enough, however, it was not the perfection of his body that impressed one on first seeing him, but rather the strange spirituality of his face. Looking at one with his deep eyes, he would sometimes not appear to see one, though needless to say, nothing would be further from his mind than to be deliberately rude to a fellow creature. It was obvious that he was a man who was used to deep and beautiful thinking, for there was no escaping the implications of that calm, thoughtful face. It has been widely said that true strength and greatness can spring only from a study and appreciation of what is small and weak and tiny. 
the modest daisy raising its meek head in the meadow sward, a robin redbreast in the frost, the general wandering zephyrs that temper the genial, genial exuberance of King Sol on a summer's day. Here, if ever, was a man who carried the repose and grandeur of nature in his face. And then, yeah, that goes on for another page, but I'm jumping to the next guy. It was more by coincidence than anything else that these gentlemen were now observed to have been joined by a third, who appeared to approach from a direction almost due east. It might as first appear to the illiterati or uninitiated that a person devoid of practically all the virtues and excellences just enumerated in respect of the other gentlemen would have but little to recommend him. Such an hypothesis, however, would involve a very serious fallacy, and one of which Antony Lamont could be said to constitute a living refutation. His body was neat and compactly built, but it had withal a lissom gracefulness and delicacy that could be almost said to be effeminate without in any way evoking anything of the <laughs> opprobrious <laughs> connotation of that word. His features were pale, finely molded, and ascetic, the features of a poet and one addicted almost continuously to the thoughts of a beautiful or fragrant nature. The delicate line of his nostrils, his sensitive mouth, the rather wild escapade that was his hair, all were clear indications of a curiously lovely asceticism, a poetical perception of no ordinary intensity. <laughs> his fingers were the long, tapering fingers of the true artist, and one would be in no wise surprised to learn that he was an adept at playing some of, uh, play, at the playing of some musical instrument, which in fact he was. His voice when he spoke was light and musical, a fact that was more than once commented on by people who had no reason for praising him, and indeed by people who had the opposite reason. <laughs> and they just all thank him at the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> he always just goes, like, deep into the, like, triplicate. Yeah, yeah. So, and the whole purpose of that is to, like, gather them together to fuck with the yeah. real author? Yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to bring them into that world of narrative and he like yeah i don't know i thought that that scene was very funny um and there's a lot like that where he just goes so far into description where like you're kind of like you're laughing to yourself like is he gonna keep going with this joke and then he just does right well that's why you're saying like the whole like eric andre element yeah yeah like, what the fuck am i reading what the fuck am i seeing why <laughs> is it going so that. far yeah truly you know one of the strangest books i've ever read but the cool thing about it is that it is self-aware and it it fully knows that it's convoluted. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's actually a part that's maybe three quarters through where it's like, you know, for those who are lost, return to page 85 for a reminder <laughs> of what's going on. Like it literally nice. does that. It's, it's not even a footnote. And I'm pretty sure I imagine it has to be revised for each edition that has like more or less total pages, like mm -hmm. to lead you to the right page again. So I got a question for you. Okay. What what if what if Flan O'Brien wrote a choose your own adventure novel? <laughs> that's kind of that's almost what happens here. Right. Because I think I could modify this book with just pencil to make it a choose your own adventure book like cuz you can exactly. point out which parts lead to the different stories. Nice. But yeah, when he points you to that page 85, it's it's like synopsis being a summary of what has gone before. And then in all <laughs> caps, for the benefit of new readers. <laughs> nice. So yeah, um, definitely need he's to so, revisit this one. Eventually. He's sort of like an, he's an author's author. Yeah, and I think that's why it's been such highly praised. You know, this one, you hear a lot about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really like, I think I can say that if, if he's, if he doesn't become my favorite author, I think I can say my favorite genre is when someone who has, uh, who obviously has a sharp wit attempts to create something that's truly absurd. Right. Whatever genre that is. Who else fits that mold? I think I would say Pynchon does for sure. Yeah. Um, David Foster Wallace. Hysterical realism, really. Yeah. Like people who are like highly talented writers that are just like, okay, now I'm going to write like this crazy thing. You know, like white noises like that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Sweet. All right. I got well, one star, one star review here real quick from, uh, that has a sentiment, sentiment in it that I want to get your opinion on. Mm -hmm. Someone, the user King says, it suffers from a sort of my first novel syndrome 
wherein the author seems more concerned with wacky experimentation than coherence, creating a form that conveniently allows him to reach and then grossly exceed novel length by means of throwing in anything he wants. O'Brien mm. seems to be having lots of fun, but I don't think he's in control. And I know mm. you like first novels. Right. Do you think there's a first novel syndrome where it's like all your ideas up to that point? You throw I would, I would actually say that first, I would say it's the opposite. I think that I would find that like first novels are sort of like the author becoming themselves in a way that they're like too afraid to do that what you just described like throwing things in or whatever mm -hmm. and then that confidence comes later where it's like oh like you know i find that first books like like if you take faulkner like mosquitoes i don't think it's his first book but it's like an early one and it's sort of like you know not fully willing to be like the crazy artist that is like deep inside and then later in life you get we've talked about that before how like lots of authors reach like this fever where it's like i'm gonna write an epic about a fee a tree in a field you know where it's like <laughs> yeah. this is the distillation of my brilliance um <laughs> so i would say the opposite that i disagree with that with king okay yeah i i agree i think i think a first novel can be great because of that reason too yeah, it's like sort of restricted in a way where they're not willing to go full at swim two birds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, I got? definitely every time you would describe his works, I I want to check them out more. So, but I will. I would read Third Policeman first. Yeah, Third Policeman, and it's interesting. Third Policeman was published after his death, but Third Policeman was written right after At Swim, so it's technically his second book. Cool. Uh, all right, so I am, first of all, good job. That was cool. Um, I am going Thank to you, visit a country that I have visited before on the podcast. I am going to tell you that I'm reading, I'm currently reading a book that I haven't been able to finish for the podcast for like multiple weeks. So I dove back into the old uh, tradition of, rattling off a quick short story <laughs> um, <laughs> instead of doing like a full book this week. Um, so it might be short and sweet, but I definitely think it's, it's, you know, worth talking about is uh, tell me what your impressions are of a little known author called Leo, Leo Tolstoy. What do you know of this man? Tolstoy confuses me because <laughs> have you read him yes okay what have you read oh god uh well like... i read war and peace <laughs> you did you read all yes. of war and peace yes holy shit okay and i mm, i think that might be it okay well that's i have quite... not read anna karenina no yeah that's the other big one and I think I've read a short story too, but I don't remember the name. Okay. Well, yeah, he's got short stories. He's his two like gigantic novels, like the ones that are huge, not only in scope and page length, but also on the literary scene are War and Peace and Anna Karenina Tolstoy. Um, I don't really want to go like too much into his life, but I did find something really interesting in reading this. Like, I think he's again, one of those people like Faulkner or Hemingway, where it's like, I'm not going to like tell you all about Tolstoy's life. Cause there's just like too much out there. There's literally movies about like him and you know, how he died. And you know, his wife was like pretty nuts. And uh, there was like some crazy like controversies, but I want to delve into um, this week. I read, the Death of Ivan Ilyich. Is that the uh, short story that you read? Possibly. It's probably one it... of his most famous short stories. It's considered a novella. Okay. Yeah, it depends. I, I have it there. I have a book that's uh, just a collection of short stories. So I'm not sure. I think so I might have read it. So do I. I bought it this week for $1 at a, <laughs> at a used, uh, at like a thrift store. So anyway, Leo Tolstoy whether you've you've probably heard of him if you're any sort of reader very famous russian author 
I've actually been told by my fiance, who is natively from St. Petersburg, that there's like a bit of a, um, there's like basically like the people who get known into like the West and into America, there's kind of like a skewed, like people over here would be like Tolstoy, biggest author in Russia, and then Dostoevsky, and then whatever. But there are also other ones that like haven't fully made it over here that like, if you said like the top five in Russia, like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky would be on the list, but they wouldn't be the top. There's another guy named Pushkin who's like basically like their most famous poet and like mm -hmm. required to be read in school like over and over. So it's sort of interesting, like that perspective of like, oh, he's the biggest Russian author ever. And it's like, yeah, he's one of, but not like crazy. Um, so there's that. And then also... Like Tolstoy, to me, he for me, he's always been like a stark contrast because I, I'm like a Dostoevsky kid, you know, like I'm like, I love Crime and Punishment. I love the story of Dostoevsky's life. It's definitely like less fortunate than Tolstoy. Tolstoy is like born into an aristocratic family where he starts reading. He starts writing his first semi-autobiographical trilogy of novels when like he's in his 20s. Um, he had experiences during the Crimean War. I'm definitely, like you said, interested in first books. He wrote a trilogy called Childhood, Boyhood, and Youth, which I'm definitely interested in. Probably more interested in that than diving right into War and Peace or Anna Karenina first thing off. But what's interesting about the death of Ivan Ilyich in terms of me is that this is the first Tolstoy that I've read. Okay. I, I have not nice. read any Tolstoy up to this point. Um... And the only other autobiographical thing that I want to go over that I thought was cool before I delve into the story of the death of Ivan Ilyich, and I'm probably saying that wrong, it's probably like Ivan Ilyich or something like that, but um, I found this really, like, I found it really interesting too that, so this is published in 1886, which is sort of like late-ish late in his life. He dies in 1910, so still got a ways to go, but... Um, this is after he famously had a profound moral crisis in during which he had like a religious conversion that he started to like, he wrote a book called A Confession, which I also want to read. And it's his literal interpretation of like the teachings of Jesus Christ. And then it also says here on Wikipedia, he became a Christian anarchist and like pacifist. So basically he was like, he started writing books that I had no idea about this until I started doing research for the podcast, but he wrote books on nonviolent resistance. And there, he also wrote a book called the kingdom of God is within you that multiple people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King jr. Have been like, yo, Tolstoy was the shit. Like he I, influenced I had no idea. About that. Me too. Like I was re I was like reading this and I was like, what? Like he, like apparently like people, you know, obviously being a famous author anyway, it's like war and peace and Anna Karenina have been on every bookshelf that you ever looked at, you know, like it's just <laughs> like, he's out there a hundred percent, but obviously like, so people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. would know who Tolstoy is being, you know, people on the literary scene and reading books in general and then it's like oh he was like awesome and about like non-violent you know protest and resistance just like that's amazing he got so religion i don't know like i don't really know like how like on the scene he was in terms of that type of stuff but he was definitely writing you know these things about non-violent resistance so then comes the death of ivan Ilyich, which is a famous novella it's definitely his fame like when I, when I have heard of Tolstoy, this is like the short story that I heard of. And um, I gotta say, it's pretty good. It's pretty freaking good. Like, there's a lot of like things about Tolstoy, I think also from the perspective that I have um, of people like growing up in Russia, where it's like, this is like required reading, like in school, you know? So it's like, that gives a different flavor completely. But it's also like, you know, novellas, especially good ones, are definitely like an amazing introduction to an author's style. I think that Tolstoy is famous for not he's be, he's famous for being so descriptive that it almost like doesn't give you much imagination, which is basically a quote from my fiance saying like she likes as like someone who's reading these people in the original Russian, she thinks that there's more room for the reader and like imagination in in uh 
Dostoevsky than there is Tolstoy, which I could definitely see that. Like, he basically, like, dryly describes things. Like, this is what's happened. It's like a movie, you know? Like, he's describing, Mm -hmm. like, this is what happened. This is what the room looks like. This is what the person said. But when those walls break down and he starts to make, like... The death of Ivan Ilyich is like a really good example of like he starts out in the Tolstoy style, but then once everything is established and he starts like breaking down the walls of what this is really going to be about, it's like really powerful. Like I thought it was really awesome. So let me get into the story of this. Like the death of Ivan Ilyich, it all starts out with basically, you know, that this guy, Ivan, like passed away and he was like in the law courts like he worked as like first a law like a clerk then a lawyer and then became a judge and when he dies it's basically a few of his friends attending his funeral and and Tolstoy has some like really interesting sort of like there's a lot in this novella that's like around the context of death there are like things that are sort of like universal like when his friends are like first hear of his passing when they're like at work basically like in the courts it's like everyone's immediate thought is one thank god it wasn't me you know that passed away (laughs) yeah and two who's gonna fill his position because then that means that like all of us get promotions yeah you know so it's like it's like oh we knew this guy like that's really sad that he died i'm really glad that i didn't die of a terrible painful illness which ivan Ilyich did die of and then let's like move on like with the rest of life. So it's like, there's that context within like the whole like short story, which is really interesting and and sort of cool. And then it eventually switch switches perspectives into you're doing, you're going along with this journey of Ivan of like, basically what happened was he rises in the ranks to the point where he is going to have a fancy house with his family for the first time in his life. Like, okay, we have multiple rooms. Like it's going to be nice. Like there's going to be furniture and nice decorations and everything. And, um, he injures himself while decorating one of these rooms. Like basically he's like working with these servants and like interior decorators and he hits himself like in the like like the side or like the hip or whatever and it basically like dislodges one of his organs but takes like forever to kill him so it's like a period of like 3 or 4 months where you stay with Ivan through all of these like he's basically on his deathbed but there's a lot of really interesting like politics that Tolstoy brings forth about like as he's passing away, it's like there are just like stages of like first it's denial, then it's like acceptance, then it's like he, you know, the person that he likes most is one of the family servants who just like basically like no one really acknowledges that like, yeah, you're you're going to die. But like only this one servant kind of like takes pity on him and he's like, we all die someday. And he's like finds comfort in the people who aren't lying to him. in a way so it's like his family keeps coming to see him it's like take your medication and like the doctor's gonna come by soon like maybe it'll be better and he's like no i'm definitely dying yeah how deep does it go into that where it's like you know the stages of his body deteriorating stuff like that does it does it cover that a lot yeah it does it kind of does it like basically like he has just like how it is like when you're sick or like when your body is changing that he has like moments where it's like and then he went to go like do this thing in front of the mirror and he was like oh fuck i like can't look at myself because like i look horrible and then he like sees like a picture of himself in the past and he's like oh my god this is not good i find that stuff really impactful i don't know why like like uh it's kind of like body horror type stuff that that stuff mm-hmm. sticks with me. Like it's not a good movie, but do you remember district nine? Like yeah. when the guy gets infected and he's like, he goes home and his, his family's throwing like a surprise party for him. And he's like, right. I got to run to the bathroom because of my body's like falling apart. Like that shit. I don't know. Oh yeah. <laughs> Ivan Ilyich. It, it is a little bit. It is a little bit like that. And this, the reason I think why people like this novella is so strong is because there's no way that you can possibly as long as you're old enough to have known someone who passed away there's no way that this novel can't like affect you like being like wow like he definitely like what for whatever was happening in tolstoy's life for him to be able to like understand what it means to like slowly kind of like go within yourself and pass away he was definitely like thinking of it like really intensely and really from like all angles where it's like he's like a really smart 
kind of like empathetic person who would understand like all these little like all the looks like between his family and all these like little things that happen are very succinctly um expressed which that was a surprise for me because his reputation is like oh it takes forever to read and, you know like whatever <laughs> but everything here was really succinct and i'm gonna read a section that's like about a page and a half long which i thought this was just one of the most amazing themes of the book and this is where it really kind of this is where it really starts to break inward. So this guy, Ivan Ilyich, is like slowly passing away in like his bedroom, like in his study in his house. And a lot of crazy stuff. Is about, oh, I would also quickly mention, not without reading that section, but there is a reference to Zola in this in this short story. So okay. I was like, really, I was like super pumped <laughs> on that. There was like a part where Ivan is like, he's going to go to bed like early or whatever. And he's like, he's trying to read this novel by Zola, but he can't concentrate. I'm like, hell yeah. Get those like solo references in, like they all knew of each other. Like it's awesome. So, um, so here's this like page and a half where this is like where really it starts to break into like the inward theme of like how much he's thinking about what it would really mean to pass away. So, uh, so he takes he basically takes his legs off of this like servant like who's holding up his legs, and uh, this is where he starts. After the servant leaves, he says. It says, he wept on account of his helplessness, his terrible loneliness, the cruelty of man and the cruelty of God and the absence of God. Why hast thou done this to me? Why hast thou brought me here? Why? Why dost thou torment me so horribly? He did not expect an answer and yet wept because there was no answer and could be none. The pain again grew more acute, but he did not stir and did not call. He said to himself, go on, strike me, but what is it for? What have I done to thee? What is it all for? Then he grew quiet and not only ceased weeping, but even held his breath and became all attention. It was as though he were listening not to an audible voice, but to the voice of his soul, to the current of thoughts arising within him. What is it you want? Was the first clear conception capable of expression in words that he heard. What do you want? What do you want? He repeated to himself. What do I want? To live and not to suffer, he answered. And again, he listened with such concentrated attention that even his pain did not distract him. To live? How? asked his inner voice. Why, to live as I used to, well and pleasantly. As you lived before, well and pleasantly, the voice repeated. And in imagination, he began to recall the best moments of his pleasant life. But strange to say, none of the best moments of his pleasant life now seemed all what they had that what they had then seemed, none of them except the first recollections of childhood. There in childhood, there had been something really pleasant with which it would be possible to live if it could return. But the child who had experienced that happiness existed no longer. It was like a reminiscence of somebody else. As soon as the period began, which had produced the present Ivan Ilyich, all that had seemed joyous now melted before his sight and turned into something trivial and often nasty. And the further he departed from childhood and the nearer he came to the present, the more worthless and doubtful were the joys. This began with the school of law. A little that was really good was still found there. There was lightheartedness, friendship, and hope. But in the upper classes, there had already been fewer of such good moments. Then, during the first years of his official career, when he was in the service of the governor, some pleasant moments again occurred. They were the memories of, of love for a woman. Then all became confused, and there was still less that was good. Later on again, there was still less that was good. And the further he went, the less there was. His marriage, a mere accident. Then the disenchantment that followed it. His wife's bad breath and the sensuality and hypocrisy. Then that deadly official life and those preoccupations about money a year of it and then two and then 10 and then 20 and always the same thing and the longer it lasted the more deadly it became it is as if i had been going downhill while i imagined i was going up and this is really what it was i was going up in public opinion but to the same extent life was ebbing away from me and now it's all done and there is only death then what does it mean why? It can't be that life is so senseless and horrible. What if it really has been so horrible and senseless? Why must I die in agony? There's something wrong. Maybe I did not live as I ought to have. It suddenly occurred to him. But how could that be when I did everything properly? He replied and immediately dismissed this from his mind, the sole solution of all the riddles of life and death as something quite impossible. Then why do you want, what do you want now? To live and live how? Live as you lived in the law courts when the usher proclaimed, the judge is coming, the judge is coming. He repeated to himself, here he is, the judge, but I am not guilty, he, he exclaimed angrily. What is it for? And he ceased crying, but turned his face to the wall, continued to ponder on the same question. Why and for what purpose is there all this horror? But however much he pondered, he found no answer. And whenever the thought occurred to him, as it often did, is it all resulted from his not having lived as he ought to have done? He at once recalled 
followed the correctness of his whole life and dismissed so strange an idea. What the hell? Yeah, (laughs) it's like fucked up. Like, it's basically like this guy who knows that he's dying and no one else around him will acknowledge his death. And he's just like, this is it. Like this, like this is how we all die. And he just dies alone, like on his couch. And eventually he comes to accept like that he is like finally going away. But it's like in the last, he has like all these really amazing metaphors. Like there's like the metaphor that he's basically being stuffed into a bag with his pain. And then he's like the only, but he's like, but for a whole month, I just couldn't get to the bottom of the bag, which would be death. So he's just like sitting there suffering and it's like horrible. It's like horrifying. It's like a crazy horrifying story. So is that where you come away feeling at the end of this book? Or the end of I the come story? away feeling yeah, I come away feeling like it's horrible and like like basically like it's waiting for all of us and there's like an element to it where he's basically trying to tell you like live life now, like it's all like this is all coming for us and the fact that like it's all encapsulated with this like society that we we all have the walls that we need to put up to deal with this kind of thing. So it's like from the perspective of the dying man, it's really fucked up. But also you can sympathize with the idea that like his colleagues like can't take it that seriously. And like no one can take it that seriously because it's not happening to them. Yeah. So it's just like all these like crazy, like sad scenes stuff like that. It's like if you've ever known anyone who passed away like over like a given amount of time versus like overnight or whatever, it's like really sad. Um. But yeah, those inner conversations and a lot of the stuff that he reveals like throughout, you know, Ivan Illich's inner world is really awesome. It's just like really good writing. And, uh, you know, again, one of those examples of like, yeah, he's famous for a reason. Fine. (laughs) So I'll jump right into my uh, we're over an hour, which is crazy, but I'll jump right into my one star review. Um, Janine's from Goodreads says what a terrible terrible story perhaps I hate it so much because I'm alive and like the characters contained within none of us wants to face our own mortality and eventual death perhaps I hated it so much because it reminded me of relatives who have passed and suffering that I could do nothing to help but maybe I hated it because it was such a bitter outlook on what happens to us all in any event upon finishing the story I said aloud to my husband as I read the, at the beginning of these comments what a terrible terrible story <laughs> I prefer so, Tuck Everlasting. Exactly. So basically, <laughs> I say I say to you, uh, what did I say? Her name was Janine. I say to you, Janine, the same rating. You could have given it a five star rating and written the same thing. It is a, it is a terrible story, but that's yeah. not any reason for a one star rating. <laughs> it's a five star. Um, and I'm looking forward to like reading more Tolstoy. The the research that I did based on Ivan Ilyich is like. I thought that I was going to have to jump into War and Peace or Anna Karenina, but I'm definitely interested in his first trilogy and also all that stuff that influenced like Gandhi and shit. Like I'm down. So, uh, yeah. Nice. Tolstoy. Thanks for everybody for listening. This has been shitty book reports. You can find us every Sunday on SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram, Twitter, and all the places where you find your podcast, iTunes and stuff like that. SBR, the podcast search for us. And uh, you can also email us at SBR, the podcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Uh, and uh, send us your comments, suggestions, corrections, or whatever you're feeling. Yeah. Let us know. Let us know what you think about uh, what if George Orwell started a clothing line. Ooh. Send us that. <laughs> Send us that. <laughs>